This is the Sales Gravy Podcast. I'm Jeb Blunt, best-selling author of Fanatical Prospecting Sales EQ, Objections, and Inc., and I'm here to help you open more doors, close bigger deals, and rock your commission check. On this episode, we'll be diving into emotional intelligence with author Colleen Stanley, and we'll be discussing why high EQ matters for sales leaders who want to build strong, high-performing teams. But before we get started, I'm excited to introduce you to Blueboard. Blueboard is the world's leading incentive platform that helps companies make President's Club meaningful again. With Blueboard, top reps get to choose the President's Club experience that's most exciting to them, from chasing the Northern Lights to yoga retreats in Mexico to taking the family to surf camp in San Diego. There's an awesome experience and adventure awaiting every rep. So if you're a sales leader, company executive, or business owner, and you're looking for a new way to recognize and retain high-performing sales reps in this new hybrid world, you need to go check out Blueboard today. And if you're a top sales pro and you're ready for a better presence club experience, go tell your boss about Blueboard. You can learn more about Blueboard's one-of-a-kind and once-in-a-lifetime presence club experiences at podcast.blueboard.com. That's podcast.blueboard.com. Now, here's my conversation with Colleen Stanley on why emotional intelligence matters for sales leaders. Welcome back to the clubhouse. I'm Jeb Blunt, CEO of Sales Gravy and the author of Sales EQ, Fanatical Prospecting Objections, Inc. and Virtual Selling. And I'm here with the great Colleen Stanley. And we're going to be talking about emotional intelligence and leadership, which is a subject that both of us share in common because we love emotional intelligence so much. And she's got a brand new book called Emotional Intelligence for Sales Leaders. And it's a book that will help you build a high-performance sales team and make you a much better leader. Colleen, welcome to the Sales Gravy Clubhouse. Wow, I think that is the best introduction I've ever had. Can we do it again? <laughs> we, can, we can do it again. I get paid for the second time, though. <laughs> All right, sounds good. So, so, Colleen, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about you and your background and, and why this book? So uh, thank you, Jeb, first of all, for having me. So like you, I started out in field sales, and I had the really good fortune of starting with a very, very small company that today is the largest in the world in their industry, Varsity Spirit Corporation. So um, when we started in sales, when you start with a startup, you get little or no training, but you get a lot of opportunity. So I became a, a salesperson. I was carrying a bag and a quota, regional sales manager, and then eventually became VP of sales, where I had 130 sellers across the country. So it was just a really fortunate way to get started in business. Had a lot of great mentors, which probably led me to eventually writing this book. I wrote a book called Sales EQ, and then you've got your beautiful emotional intelligence for sales success behind you, which inspired me to write Sales EQ after I read your book. And and, and just to sort of build out on the themes that you had already uh, done a, a great job of building a foundation on. So in, in Sales EQ, we talk about ultra high performers, so the, yeah. the, the top of the top, and how they leverage emotional intelligence to help them become better at dealing with people, managing their own emotions, and, and, and using human influence frameworks to advance deals through the pipeline. And 
And everywhere I go, sales leaders totally agree with this. So they'll come at me and go, sales EQ, great. We love it. Emotional intelligence sales people. My salespeople never be, need, you know, need better emotional intelligence. So they're, they're all keen to teach their salespeople and help their salespeople develop emotional intelligence, but they don't always practice it themselves. And I'm wondering why that is. Why do sales leaders you know, essentially say everybody else should have you know, these, these attributes that allow them to uh, have better interpersonal skills. But me as a leader, I'm, I'm exempt for that because I'm in leadership. All right. And so, Jeb, I will have to say to your audience today, I'm going to feel like I'm uh, talking to the choir, preaching to the choir with you with all of your expertise in this area. But here's the one thing I've seen, whether you're a seller or a sales leader. Usually when you've got that blind spot, it goes back to an EQ conference the lack of self-awareness, right? And we both know that that which you're not aware of, you can't change, and that which you're not aware of, you're bound to repeat. So often sales leaders, they can kind of work in a bubble, right? You know, your salespeople have each other, and let's say you've got a mid-sized company, and there isn't five other sales managers or 20 other sales managers, they're by themselves. Well, who's there to give them the feedback on perhaps where they're not demonstrating emotional intelligence every day? So there might be a feedback loop that is missing for the sales leader, as well as simply self-awareness, sitting and reflecting, how do I show up today? How do I want to show up? How does emotional intelligence impact leaders when they're coaching? Let's just imagine that you're a leader and you're doing a side-by-side -side with a rep on the inside, or you're, you know, you're going out with them on sales calls. And following the sales call, you're just going through the process of coaching the call. How does emotional intelligence help a leader become a better coach in, in those pivotal moments where they can make a difference in a salesperson's life? You know, the biggest thing I think sales, uh, emotional intelligence does is it helps a sales leader work on the right end of the sales performance issue, right? So um, when I was a sales, regional sales manager, I taught a lot of the tactical coaching skills, coached them. But then when I started coming across this body of work, I realized that's the presenting problem, but the underlying problem is usually lack of development of a soft skill or skill. For example, everyone in the sales training business should teach, get a clear next step on the calendar, right? Simple. Well, that's the tactical selling skill, but I have found when I really dig into why somebody doesn't ask for a clear next step, a meeting with a decision maker, uncover budget before writing proposals, it's because they lack the assertiveness to state what they need nicely. And so if you don't know how to diagnose the problem, you keep, you keep working on the wrong end of it. In coaching, and now I will take a look in the mirror here, you know, you're giving that well-intended coaching session, right? You know, you've done that sandwich method, Jeb, where you share something positive, the need to be uh, area to work on, and wrap up with positive. I never like the sandwich method, by the way. It doesn't work for me, but it, it works for a lot of people. However, in this situation, you've got a salesperson, and perhaps that day they're kind of full of self-doubt. Um, they're seeing everybody else in the team win. So instead of hearing your well-intended advice, they start lobbying excuses back. Well, I'm sure you're like me and all the other sales managers you work with. Excuses are like nails, you know, on a chalkboard. So, and I've seen this with myself. I start getting emotionally triggered by their excuses. And then I turn into a trial attorney and start laying out the closing argument, overcoming every one of their objections, and then asking any questions, right? So my emotions get in the way of me executing the right coaching skills asking questions, being curious, applying the right level of empathy. So I 
totally seen why I've blown a coaching call because emotions started running that meeting rather than my skills. I think you're right on the money. And so a couple of things we might want to unpack there. So one of the things that I teach sales leaders in our coaching courses is that especially when it comes to the highly emotional aspects of sales, like advancing a deal to the next step or picking up the phone and making a prospecting call, the things that salespeople essentially have a hard time with because of the assertiveness that's required. They have to step out and do things that are unnatural for human beings. Sales managers have to learn how to be Teflon. In other words, rather than it, ha you know, there's the excuses are nails that are scratching a chalkboard, uh, which gives me the willies just thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> they have to learn how to just smile and allow no excuses to stick. So for example, when a salesperson says, well, you know, nobody's going to answer the phone at 10 o'clock in the morning. I go, that's okay. Let's do it anyway. So you like, you learn how to just change the way that you do things so that you can help them move forward. And I think one of the other things is for sales leaders, and, and, and this is a big deal, it's impulse control. So for example, you, you get attached to an outcome that you want, like you want the salesperson to agree with you versus allowing the salesperson to have any answer that they want. Your job is to ask questions to help them become aware that they have an issue, not to tell them they have an issue. And it's the impulse control that, that, that allows you to step back and say, you know what, I'm gonna win. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna come out in this, in this argument on top because my job is to guide this person to a solution. Now, you right. said also about the assertiveness, and, and this, I think, is probably the most challenging thing I have to teach sales leaders is understanding the empathy scale. So their salespeople fit on the empathy scale at some point. They're either, you know, they're either you know, highly empathic or they're highly self-centered. And sometimes you get a few people in the middle, and they're the, they're the savants in the world that can, they can go on either side of that, and they're able to right. change, but most people aren't. And, you know, most of your salespeople are probably, you know, sevens and eights more towards empathetic. Uh, and you've got a handful of people who are like me who are more self-centered. And the sales leaders, you know, because they hire a lot of people who are empathetic, who are really good at relationships, but are terrible at advancing the deal because they always think they're going to be too pushy when they ask. So the sales leaders are just exasperated because the deals are stuck in this pipeline and not moving. So they're telling these people whose natural inclination is not to be too pushy to go ask, but they don't actually know how to ask. And the right. flip side of that are people like me who are highly, you know, I'm, I'm just a self-centered human being. I have no problem asking for anything. I just ask for what I want, keep moving. And, and I'm terrible if without coaching in complex deals. I'm really good in transactions, but terrible in complex. If I don't have good coaches to help me hone my interpersonal skills and grow my empathy and be intentional about my empathy. And the right. thing that sales leaders are doing is, like you said, they're working on the surface and, and everything that they're doing is working on a symptom, not on a cause. And the cause is ingrained in the human being. I mean, go look in the mirror. You hired the person who won't ask for the next step. You did that. You found them in yeah. an interview and they appealed to you and you brought them on. So you've got to walk them through the process as a coach and think about when you do that. Are you coaching before the call? If you were coaching before the call, you would be asking, what's your target the next step? How do you intend to ask for the next step? When are you going to ask for the next step? And when you walked out of the call, you would ask, how did that go? And they would say, well, it went pretty good. We got the next step. And you would go, yes, you did. Nice job. Rather, yeah. than, rather than trying to catch them doing something wrong, being able to step back and disconnect emotionally from the situation to figure out what you need to do to help the salesperson improve is that's like the, the if we were to dial it in, that's the essence of sales leadership, but it's also really, really hard. And so here's my question for you, like in those emotional moments, like you're a sales leader and, and you're right, everybody's been there because I know I've been there. I've crushed people in those moments when they're blah, 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 blah. So even though I teach this, like I've done it before, like what, what, what's the process that a sales leader should go through 
in order to catch themselves before their mouth opens and they do real damage. So I would say step number one, and this is not a new concept. I still don't see people practicing it enough. With self-awareness, the only way you increase self-awareness of when you're getting triggered, right? Because I've kind of framed this up as the trigger response regret loop. Seller that's not doing something, that's a trigger. You start selling yourself a story about that seller, creates the emotion, and then you give a response you regret or, or simply not very helpful. So really to increase, increase your self-awareness, I would encourage everybody to carve out the quiet time each and every morning. Where did I get triggered yesterday? What was the story I was telling about the salesperson? Okay, what would be a better response or different response? And you mentally rehearse and verbally rehearse. So for me, because I can be really quick with the reaction, this is, this is really why I got interested in EQ was <laughs> due to some of my own lack of EQ in certain areas. And so I will have to sit there and go, and in the neuroscience of, of selling and sales leadership, saying what, could else, what else could be going on here? Because that's the way you stop that quick amygdala to the prefrontal cortex, right? Wonder what else is going on here? What's the story here? Some people call this curiosity, but to your point, you just slow down. But then I think that's where you've got to have the skills. I love pivot questions. And so when you the seller said, Nobody, nobody's answering the phone at 10 in the morning. If you can remain calm, you simply say, well, is that based on perception or data? And right there, it's kind of a duh question. Well, what do you mean? Well, have you called a lot at 10 and not gotten answers? And even if they say yes, then say, well, tell me what you said. Because then they might be calling, but the value proposition is terrible. It's not updated. So you know, again, where to work. Something else you said, Jeb, is, um, and we devoted a whole chapter, and I know you talk about this a lot as well, a lot of sales managers haven't been coached to uh, coach people out of self-limiting belief systems. See, people not answering the phone at 10 o'clock could also be a limiting belief system. Not like when you said, I don't think you're self-centered, right? But if you're saying, hey, I'm assertive, I ask for the next step. Well, if somebody actually does think that's being self-centered, well, not that person, right? And so you've got to work on that belief system that says, What's the belief system around being assertive, asking for what you need? Their belief system is that's pushy, that's not nice. I was taught to play nice. So until somebody can learn to coach what I call the invisible briefcase, all those belief systems that show up with mom, dad, first coach, right. teacher, you know, peers and colleagues, that's the piece that a lot of managers have to learn, master, and coach to. I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, and I, I love the trigger response regret loop because I've been on that loop. And, oh, you know, yeah. and as a leader, you know, the, one of the things that I recommend people, especially leaders, is if your company offers this, take advantage of it, get a 360 degree assessment done. I did this as a, a leader. I was, I had been promoted to vice president of sales for a large company. They had corporate psychologists on staff to work with executives, wow, nice. and, which was really cool. It was a great, great thing. And, and, uh, and my boss, who was a senior vice president said, I'm going to get you hooked up with an executive coach and we're going to do a 360 review. And and I had like, I mean, rocket ship through that organization. I'd started off driving a truck and in 10 years I was head of sales. And the, and I, and when I, what, what I basically happened to me was I ended up in the fetal position, you know, rocking on the floor going, please make it stop after getting a 360 <laughs> review. But what it was, what, what basically happened is it revealed exactly that. Like it revealed that 
I, I was re- very quick just to like, just tell people what to do. And I wasn't taking time as a leader to sit back and think, and my impulse control had a problem and I didn't focus on the right things. I just was like, listen, why can't you all get this? This is just easy. Like for me, sales was easy. Yeah. And it was revealing and it made me step back and do that introspection. Like you said, take some time as a leader and just stop and sit in yeah. silence and think about what is it about your salespeople that are triggering, triggering your emotions and what is your behavior after those emotions get triggered. And the way that I, I the analysis that I give the salespeople, and, and by the way, my, my interest in EQ started in that 360 because I was, I ran, I, they, they was required that I read Daniel Goldman's Emotional Intelligence. And I read that book and then read, you know, many, many more when I wrote, you know, Sales EQ, I think I wrote, read 800 research papers in the process of doing that. And so I got deeply interested in it because it was a weak spot for me. Like it was a big blind spot that I missed. I, and I, I can hear it in your voice too. So, but the thing that I, the thing that oh, I explain to leaders, and, and this was me as a leader, is, is I always ask people, you know, you've ever been on a boat, everybody's been on a boat. And uh, I used to have, I lived in Florida, had a really big boat, a 42 foot boat that put out a massive wake. I mean, when we were on, you know, when we were cruising through the intercoastal, I could put out a six foot wake. And what I ask people is when you're, you know, you're looking at the captain on a boat, which, which direction is the captain looking? And everybody says, well, they're looking out the front because they want to hit anything. I go, yeah, they're not looking behind you. But the the thing is, is that a boat with a six foot wake can cause a lot of damage. And if you never take back, you know, stop and look behind you, you're never aware of the damage that you cause. And therefore you can't go fix it because you're going to make a mistake and you got to go fix it. So this, this concept of trigger response, regret, that's really powerful. I've never heard that before. I love that. And the your your admonition that leaders sit back and just take time to reflect so I, let me ask you another question around that as a leader like i know you look at sales leaders and you tell them hey sit down and take some time to reflect and they just look at you like you got eight heads right what do you mean take time to reflect i don't have time to reflect i got boom 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 i got a million things to do yeah how do, you get, all the time. Mm-hmm. how do you how do you advise leaders to actually take that time and then when they're taking that time, structure it in a way that it that it really does become useful for them to pay attention to their leadership style, what they're doing, almost like a self-assessment uh, f- for the day. How, what's the process? And, and, I'm, and I'm laughing because I'm, I can just see you in a room telling leaders and they just sit back and take some time to reflect and what they look at you with. Well, and the good news is it it's becoming a little bit more well-known, but I'm not seeing it well-practiced, right? And so I think if you can... One thing I talk to people about is everybody loves the concept of empathy, even if they don't get it, right? They, there's been enough research that this helps you win business. So sometimes, Jeb, I think as we're trying to get sales leaders to understand the full impact of these soft skills is you tie it into capitalism. This helps you make more money. Now you're going to get their attention. So for example, if they're not showing enough empathy, there might be a part of them that are like, you know what, just buck up, step up, suck it up, right? And uh, frankly, that'd probably be more my natural style, <laughs> truth be <laughs> right? Doesn't get you very far. But what I explained to them is that empathy isn't a verbal skill. Empathy is a thinking skill. And so that, that kind of gives them pause because how can I know what somebody else is thinking or feeling if I don't know or care? And if I don't know what they're thinking or feeling, how can I influence their actions to do consistent prospecting, do the next steps, ask the tough questions. So that gives them a pause because 
people think it's this, empathy is first and foremost a thinking skill. Diagnosing problems is a thinking skill. So frankly, if you're not thinking, you're just probably on that sales gerbil wheel going very, very fast, repeating the same mistakes. So if I can tie it into a result, that starts getting their attention and then gradually bringing them along. Well, one of the things that, that I advise leaders on is it, around empathy and relationships is that the relationship or the emotional experience that their people have while working with them is a much more consistent predictor of performance than any other variable, including talent. Uh, because I've worked with people who were not very talented, but were willing to run through a wall for me that I could direct them in the right, in the right way. So let's, let's step back on empathy because I had a debate with my son who you met earlier and who's 22 That's years so old man, right out of college. Thank you. And, you know, we're, we're really happy that he's working with us and I'm trying to teach him, but we were having this conversation about empathy and it was really a, a, sort of an intellectual debate. And what I said to him is empathy is not something you do. It is, it, it is something you are. And I don't know that I ever came, got to a place where we, we got an understanding of that because the, you know, he was, he was like going through the process of, you know, we teach people in sales to be empathetic. Is that, is that teaching them to be manipulative? And I, and I said, you can't be manipulative and empathetic at the same time. Those two things are, are opposites. They don't work together. You, you, you either are empathetic or you're not empathetic. There's no, there's no in between. So I'm, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm uniquely interested in your, in your take on that, that position. So it, it's, a, it's a great conversation. And I, here's what I think happens. First of all, everything's about your intent. And this might sound a little woo. <clears throat> People actually can feel your energy. And they feel it across this. Because I've done, you've done hundreds of podcasts. And you've probably seen people where they're just checking in. I posts that are just checking in. You are not doing that. Thank you very much. Um, and I, I mean that nicely. But you just, so energy is important. So I always tell people, you know, really examine your intent because you show up to close a piece of business, you're just not going to. Um, they are going to, it's going to trigger that amygdala fight or flight. But let's go back to your question on empathy. I think sometimes you have to do it before you are it, right? And so um, I, I'll give you the case study. So I've been married to my husband about 21 years. Jim is a former prosecutor. Now does criminal defense work. Got the personality style. Oh, and I yeah. have Marie. <laughs> and so, but what he realized, yeah, so we, you can imagine what conversations are like around here. But here's what he realized. He does have very um, high self-awareness. And he realized when he started his own practice that if he was going to be a person of influence, he had to demonstrate more empathy. And one day, actually, I heard him on the phone. You know, this guy's comfortable in the courtroom, Jeff. He, that's where he plays, right? But I will tell you the conversation he was having with the potential client and he hung up and I said, could you try a little empathy? He said, well, what do you mean? And I said, do you realize you love the courtroom? And for most people walking into that building, it is terrifying. He started studying empathy. So in the beginning, he was doing it. Now he's become it. So I think sometimes you have to do it and it might be a little stumbly bumbly. And then I think you start seeing the magic, you start seeing better conversations and deeper conversations. So I don't know if that gives you an answer, but. I think that's right. I, what I teach people, especially on the lower end of the empathetic scale, uh, or the empathy scale, because you know, th there's no doubt that empathy is a meta skill in sales. 
even though the data tells us that people who are more self-centered over time statistically outperform people who are more empathetic. And, and that, but that is a personality trait that you're born with. Like that is who you are, but that doesn't mean you can't change it. Like I think your advice to your husband's right on the money because empathy is learning how to step in other people's shoes and see things from their perspective. It is not a kumbaya moment. And I think that's where people miss. So if I can understand that you're afraid of walking into the courtroom, I get that. Then I can change my approach to helping you feel more comfortable or at least giving you advice. And I think that's, I think that's the key is if I can, if I can perceive that what's happening here is not that the person doesn't want to make, you know, or just basically telling me that people answer the phone at 10 o'clock. They're just afraid of being told no. Like they're afraid of the rejection. If I can focus on that, then I can help them. So it is yeah. about being intentional. And I do agree with you because that's coming out of my 360 and, you know, and, and, and practicing this. Now, this has been, you know, 15 years ago, but it's always practicing be, and being intentional about empathy because I'm not always intentional about it. Sometimes I'm like, you know, just what is wrong with you? Like buck up and come on, come on going. So I get that. Um, but I think yeah. that some sales leaders mistake empathy for, I need to have, I need, everybody needs to like me. And, and that's different. So I'm, I want to, I want to move towards like, in just a moment, but I've got another question for you because mm -hmm. I grew up with great sales leaders. I, probably the luckiest thing that happened to me was that I had a series of really good leaders who had all kinds of different personality styles and traits and ways that they led, but they were all really good. And the thing that I can, if I say, you know, two things about both, you know, all of them is I always believed that these people were smart enough to get me in position to win. So when they were giving me advice, especially on big deals, when we were working on big complex enterprise level deals, which is really my wheelhouse, they were, they, their strategy that they were working on, the way that they were working through things, I, I, I believed in them and I believed in their competency around that. Even though they weren't always right, I believed that they were they were thinking through that. And I always believed that they had my best interest at heart. Now, that's my setup. Most of these leaders were, to use a no better word, they were hard asses. I mean, they were, there was no, there was no room on, on, you know, on, on the, on the kumbaya scale for them. Like we were, it was, we sell, this is our job. This is survival of the fittest. And, you know, and you don't like it tough. You know, we're going to be here at 11 o'clock working on a proposal tough. You, you know, you don't like that, that I just gave you some feedback on the message that you just wrote in the proposal tough. It sucks. Do it again. Like, but that's, that, that was how they approached it but they were so good. Like they turned me into a great salesperson because the, they loved me. I mean, they love sales. They love their people. You knew that you could, you know, you could get that. And one of the things that, that just bothers me, and I was having this conversation with my buddy, Anthony Anarino, who, you know, uh, the other day ago, and he's like, I just, we keep seeing the same thing, just a complete lack of courage with sales leaders to just tell people the truth. And I don't know how all this connects to emotional intelligence, but it's just the thing that bothers me the most because I just don't see in a lot of cases that young salespeople are getting sales leaders who have those attributes. And when I talk to people who are our age, a lot of people have the very same story of these sales leaders who came up through the trenches and just were tough, but were really, really good. Mm -hmm. And my question is in today's age, so we, I mean, we certainly are in a different world than we were um, when I was carrying a briefcase. How do leaders do that? Like, how do you become a leader that, that 
20 years from now, your, you know, your salesperson is on a podcast with somebody and they're talking about you and the impact that you made in their life or me where I, you know, I'm, I'm dedicating books to these people where yeah. they made such an impact. How do you become that leader? How do you leave that level of legacy and practice emotional intelligence at the same time, or at least the attributes of emotional intelligence at the same time? So I would say, number one, I love the fact that you're giving credit to mentors, okay? Because I've seen an awful lot of people that do not. So let's back up. Make your life easy as a sales leader and to the best of your ability, hire people with specific EQ skills. And I would say you are somebody that you could probably give some pretty tough coaching to and you didn't buckle. I'm the same way based really kind of on the household I grew up in. So one thing is, are you hire, you know, have you tested somebody that have they ever received feedback from their parents? Or a coach because boy it is tough I, I mean this nicely but to take somebody that this is the first time they're going to get see any criticism the trophy you just may need to improve your hiring practice and there's a whole lot of conversation there but then i think it's this combination of realizing are you building and i don't think this is my term it's called uh caretaking or care for uh cultures right caretaking cultures are Jeb, let me help you out. It's not your fault. You're right. You're not getting enough leave. We need more time. You didn't get enough training. And then the caring for is they are the ones that have the confidence. They've made enough emotional deposits in your, as they call it, bank account. And they do a nice combination of empathy and assertiveness. And so I think it's also having that confidence to say, hey, listen, I hired the right person. I'm going to give them the feedback. But if I have these caretaking cultures, Profit stagnate, sales stagnate, and we're all out of a job there. So it, it probably goes back to, I think the reason people, what I've learned when teaching assertiveness, the biggest reason sales leaders aren't assertive and stating what they need, it's like everybody else. They're fearful of what they're going to lose. Fear of loss is the biggest reason we don't state what we need nicely. So I think for a manager, if you're not willing to have conversation, they fear this salesperson's going to leave. They're going to take a book of business. Well, at that point, you might have a recruiting problem, okay? Yeah. Or you might have that you're not giving the person enough uh, kudos. And I think the research is actually people need five positives to one piece of feedback. And I'm not talking this, but just take a look. Are you recognizing some things? Um, so I, I, I do believe that fine balance of having the confidence, hire the right people. But I've had some great bosses uh, that actually did have the EQ, Jeb, but they demanded a lot. I mean, we learned. I worked straight commission most of my life. So if you weren't making it, frankly, it was thank you, but you're gone. You know, I remember this one year when I was the number one sales rep in my company and they sent me a catalog of stuff to choose from as my president's club reward. Honestly, it felt like a slap in the face. Demotivating doesn't begin to describe how disappointed I felt. And my company made a big mistake that year because I eventually left because I felt so disrespected. And this is exactly why forward-thinking leaders, companies, and sales organizations trust Blueboard for their sales and presence club incentives. They know that motivating and retaining their top salespeople is a competitive edge. So instead of lame gifts, cash spiffs, and flying 100 people to the Bahamas, with Blueboard, your winning reps get to choose their own bucket list trip, something that is truly meaningful to them beyond any dollar amount, a trip they will never forget. And trust me on this, because I know from experience, when their reward means something to them, when it's special, they'll be twice as motivated to win again. 
From hitting the slopes in Colorado, swimming with whale sharks in Cabo, or chasing the northern lights, there's truly something for everyone. So if you're ready to raise your President's Club to the next level, go check out Blueboard. You can get a free demo and a free sales incentive planning guide by going to podcast.blueboard.com. That's podcast.blueboard.com. Now back to my conversation with Colleen Stanley. I don't know. Did that help at all? Yeah, because I, one of the things that I teach leaders is, you know, is is when we start thinking about empathy, and we think about relationships. Like you're, it's when we really look at well, people follow you. It's based on do they have a relationship with you and do they trust you? And everything else is academic after that, right? It's basic. But when we when we when we start thinking about that, this is not about you lowering your standards. I want to work for a leader that says our standards are here. It's about you having enough empathy to step into the shoes that you're, of the people that you're working with and lead them based on who they are, not on who you are. So it's yeah. being able to work with each of them. So, for example, I had tough managers, but my tough managers knew that I could take it. I had a tough manager. I'm the number one salesperson in the company. I've set the all-time record in 100 years for the most sales ever in the organization, and it's March. I can go to sleep, and I'm going to wake up at President's Circle, and I'm taking home the trophy for the number one sales rep. Nobody's ever sold that much ever. And this guy could be afraid that I'm going to walk out the door and go someplace. And he tells me that if I don't get off my butt and stop watching Gilligan Island, like I'm not going to be working on a sales team. That takes a lot of courage to tell your number one salesperson, this isn't acceptable. Like just because you, you sold stuff, that was yesterday. Today, we got to go prospect. Today, we got to fill the pipeline. And thank God I had somebody in my life when I was 24 years old that taught me that you can't take your foot off the accelerator. But, but he knew that when he did that to me i got mad right but that's what happened to me i got pissed off and i went out and proved him wrong i went oh i'm i would at the end of that quarter i'm the number one salesperson in the region i think that for leaders you got to understand what your people can take and who they are and that's not easy but i also think that it's not about you lowering your standards and one of my one of my uh, two, two examples one leader her name's andrea hoff she's a big talent um you know vp she works for huge companies but i interviewed her for one of my books and she said that she had a hard time giving praise like just telling people because she had really high expectations everybody should come along and she got some advice in a 360 that she wasn't given enough praise so she's what she did was she put chocolates in her pocket and she loved chocolate. So every time she handed somebody else some praise and said, nice job, she could have a piece of chocolate. So her goal was at the end of the day that her pocket was empty. So I thought that was a really good way to remind yourself to be intentional, to learn how to be empathetic because praising somebody is empathy. By the way, even if, even if what they're doing isn't what you expect, but it's better than it was before, right. that's, a, that's a tough thing for a lot of leaders, especially you know, you know, top leaders you know, who have, they've crushed every goal in their entire lives. It's very hard for them to see progress as, as, as something that, that's working for them. And the other piece of advice, probably the best piece of advice that I ever got about, about being a leader and giving out praise and courage was uh, from one of my one of my number one mentors, a guy named Chris Dodds, and he said that it's not about whether your people like you. He said you you have to get over that. It's about whether you like your people, and if they know that you like them for who they are, right? The 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 person that they are, they know that. And, and even if you can't find anything, like if you can't find anything, you probably don't need to work for you. But you need to find something about them that you like and focus on that. Then they'll respond to you, even when you're giving them advice or tell or coaching them or saying things to them right. that they don't like in the moment. They won't lose their respect for you. 
Absolutely. And, you know, we, we, isn't it funny? We teach this in sales, you know, buyer personas, uh, what are their demands, personal, professional. Okay, let's really get to know our prospects. And then sometimes I will see really what you're referring to as mass management. Mm -hmm. Reminding me, uh, gosh, way back, this is, you know, 20 years ago. And, you know, when we were starting and building the company, you had way too many direct reports. Like when I was a regional manager, I think I had 18 people reporting to me. But I remember I kept this Excel spreadsheet because you didn't have CRMs back then, right? And so I had read in some book that this relationship, but, you know, some kind of self-taught. So I would make sure I'd reach out to my sellers uh, once simply to check in on personal. Nothing to do with business. And I would mark it off on my Excel spreadsheet. But there was one seller I had I needed to call every day. She was up in Minnesota, wasn't wimpy or needy. She simply needed a five-minute call at the end of every day, and she wanted to report in. Now, some people might say that's a pain in the neck. You know what? If that's what she needed. I had reps in Texas that they were like, if I called them, like, what do you want? I'm not, I'm doing my, so, and so I think we've got to, again, slow down and build a buyer persona, build a salesperson persona. And do we really understand their intrinsic, extrinsic, you know, all of those good things? Well, you see. couldn't be more right. You know, I remember when I was uh, in my, my late 20s, I had a sell, my first sales team. And, uh, you know, the greatest thing, I, I just thought being a sales manager was the greatest thing in the world because I had my own tribe. And I still think it was the best job I ever had. But, but I would be out, you know, on my, you know, like my front driveway at nine o'clock at night, having a conversation with my, one of my reps, talking them off a ledge because their girlfriend, boyfriend, dog died, something happened, things went wrong in their life. And she would say, why are you doing this? Work is over. And I would explain to her tomorrow morning, this human being has got to be in front of one of the biggest deals in our pipeline that's going to make our quarter. And I got to make sure when they get there that their head's on straight. So if I got to be up till two o'clock in the morning talking about the ledge, that's what I'm going to do because this is what this human being needs. Like they need a friend in this moment, not yeah. a leader. And I, and I think that you're exactly right. I got people on my team. If I call them on a regular basis and just, and let, and just, I just call and say, how are you doing? Happy. Other people, if they never heard from me ever again, they're happy too. And so we have a deal. You hit your number, I'll leave you alone. Works pretty good mm -hmm. for me. People don't care whether or not you're fair. They only care whether you're fair to them. And I think that's what gets missed in this mass management. Let me yeah. switch gears real quickly because you yeah. said something that I think is really important and you kind of brushed over it. I want to get back to it. Isn't it interesting how sales coaching is almost analogous to selling? Like the same motions and movements that you're asking your salespeople to do, ask questions, listen, pay attention, advance, be assertive you know, work with flex to different stakeholder personalities. Isn't it interesting that this exact same behaviors are what, what, what is required in coaching. And then you don't, as a leader, you don't demonstrate those same behaviors. What are you teaching your salespeople about what you're asking them to do? Yeah. So, so for example, when you take a look at coaching sessions, I will ask my sales leaders, how much time have you spent in pre-call planning this particular coaching session? Have you diagnosed, you know, the presenting problem? How are you going to move beyond the presenting problem? What are the questions you're going to ask? Because I think uh, human nature, this is what I've seen with sales leaders. They're really good on a sales call, right? They've got the questions. They've got the dealing with objections, overcoming all those things you wrote about in your book. Then they go with the seller. They haven't designed any of those questions. So then they default into telling 
And we all know human behavior does not change with telling because people believe their own data. So one of the things, a sales manager, are you applying pre-call planning practices? Um, and if you diagnose what you think is the issue, then what are questions to dig deeper? So it's just, and that's the impulse control. Uh, so we, we uh, always laugh that salespeople go into verbal vomit. Well, I've seen a lot of sales leaders go into verbal vomit. Here's what you need to do. And the seller's going, they think they're actually doing it. <laughs> I know you've yeah. seen that. And, or not even setting up the role plays or doing role plays at all. I mean, that sounds like a, a given, but I'm still seeing a lot of sales leaders accept the excuse, well, my team doesn't like to do it because it's not real. And my uh, standard answer is neither is basketball practice after it, you know? So it's just interesting. The, yeah, it's very, very similar if you take a look at the process. And when I hear leaders saying that, like my salespeople don't have to role play because it's not real. What I'm hearing is the salespeople are causing you pain and they're making you go away. The salespeople right. understand how to play you like a fiddle. That's why I go back to you right. got to be Teflon, right? So salespeople will tell you anything that they feel is uncomfortable. We don't want to do that. If you accept that, then you're abdicating your responsibility to grow and develop them because it makes you feel uncomfortable. And this, right. again, it goes back to emotional intelligence. It's the ability to understand and perceive your own emotions and how that's impacting your behavior so that then you can respond appropriately to the emotions of other people and influence their behavior. And that to me is like, I mean, it's quintessential for how emotional intelligence is so important for leaders because you have to rise above that emotion and be aware that whether all this is happening at the subconscious level or not, they understand that any sales management behavior that gets a negative reinforcement will decrease in frequency if you allow that to happen. So if, for example, leaders go, my salespeople just hate one-to-ones. I'm like, okay, so what do you do? Well, I don't do them as frequently anymore. Okay, how's that working out for you? Well, we got problems. We got this, we got this, we got this. Great. So why don't you do one-on-ones? Well, they don't like them. I said, well, what do you mean? How do they show that to you? Well, they show up and then they don't say anything. And then, you know, I have to spend all, I'm like, listen, you're doing this all wrong. You're creating an emotional problem for yourself. This is not about you. It's about them. And, and by the way, if you spend three hours preparing for your one-to-one, you're never going to do one-to-ones. It's their, it's their meeting, not your meeting. You know, so I think that, I think that's a big deal for leaders to understand how, how much emotions are at play because yeah. leadership is personal. And the way that you feel about it as a leader is personal. It is personal. You've got to remember that, you know, when you're in a situation where you're making an excuse for not doing the right thing, that's all about you, not about them. And, and the same excuses that they give you that drive you crazy, you're doing to yourself, maybe to your boss. But a lot of times, times sales leaders don't get the same type of have the same type of relationship with their director or their VP uh, as right. the salespeople are going to have with you. So there is a disconnect there for sales leaders in terms of the leader themselves getting coaching and feedback. Exactly. Uh, and a lot of times that coaching and feedback comes through drive-by, right? You come, your, your, your director calls you on the phone and says, you're missing your numbers, hurry up, you know, and then, okay. Right. Well, you know, Jeff, this is interesting because I was speaking to a group and I said, what are the KPI? And they were CEOs. And I said, what are the key performance metrics you've set for your VPs of sales? And I was, and I was leading it, you know, I was leading the quote witnesses, I call it. I said, so what is their um, sales management coaching activity plan? Write alongs, listen alongs, whatever the industry is, right? And everybody was sitting there and uh, sales meetings, have you observed a sales meeting? Is it a roll call meeting or a training and development meeting? So nobody is 
the sales manager has nobody to report to for accountability. And we all know it doesn't matter how disciplined you are or how high you score in personal accountability, we do better when somebody's holding us accountable to the measurement. But I wanted to go back to something you said with the emotion on coaching, because we talk about something called the J curve. So here's what I've seen happen. Uh, you're conducting a new skill set. And boy, are a lot of them having to learn some new skills. You're talking about that in your new book, Virtual Selling, right? And so here's what happened. They were really good at this. And now they've got to learn a new set of skills, uh, dealing with new decision makers, new value propositions, objectives. And they go down and they get to the bottom of the J curve. And here's what starts happening. The salesperson gets full of self-doubt, fear. I just want to go back to my old way. Well, to your point, the sales leader gets frustrated. I can't believe this. We've been over this before. And they get tired of doing the repetitions necessary to achieve mastery. So people just wallow down here versus if they would stay with it, put in, and, and coaching can be a little tedious at times. I think, you know, you've got repetition, neuroplasticity is the only way you improve. But if they'll stay with it, they achieve new levels. But right here is where both parties are tested with coaches. I'm fearful. I'm not going to improve. I'm tired of this. I might as well close the deal myself. So I think it's a great point, the emotion that gets involved in all of this um, with coaching and, and development. Oh, I mean, it's the hard, hardest part of leadership. I mean, leadership would be awesome if you didn't have people. I mean, they're, you know, because <laughs> right. it'd be great. Exactly. But, but I do think as a leader, we are our own worst enemies. And I know that myself, I'm listening to, I was listening to, uh, uh, Entree Leadership podcast on the way in, and yeah. uh, Jocko was on there talking about leadership. And I'm listening, and I'm you know realizing, okay, I'm making some mistakes as a leader. We're you know we're we're our company's growing so fast, and we're, we're reinventing a lot of things and bringing new people on. And uh, and I I woke up this morning, and I was just exhausted by everything that we're doing. I realized that my exhaustion is starting to I, I, I'm letting other people see it in the wrong way. Like they mm -hmm. I'm they can I'm just tired. And I'm yeah. being a little bit too personal and I need to back that off just a little bit. Now, I don't, nobody said anything, but this goes back to the awareness that I learned in a 360 right. was to always right. be thinking what, what, like, what wake are you leaving behind? So, I, you know, I've got to stop, set back and make some adjustments and think about how I'm impacting people. Because at the end of the day, as a leader, whether it's a sales leader or in my case, a CEO, I'm getting paid for what other people are doing, not from what I'm doing. I think this is where a lot of sales leaders really miss it, right? They, they don't understand that their whole role is to make everybody around them better so that they become obsolete. Nobody's paying me for what I'm doing. People are paying me for what other people are doing. Yeah. And, and this, by the way, is, you know, it's one of the things I think when we go back to impulse control, which is a big part of managing your own emotions, yeah. is what sales leaders do in sales calls. You go out with a salesperson or you're on the telephone with a salesperson or you're on a Zoom call with a salesperson, and trust me, I'm guilty of this, and you go all commando on them, right? So they're in the middle of it. You cut them <laughs> off. You take over the call. You run the call because you're really freaking good at selling because that's why you got the job in the first place. And we can't lose this deal. You yeah. can't lose the deal. Nobody can make a mistake. And then nobody fails. Nobody, nobody learns right. anything. That is really, really hard to do. For me, it's hard to do, especially when I'm looking at deals my company's working on, especially in a time where we're, you know, driving cash flow so we can invest in other things. And and, and look, I go back to my exhaustion. I'm tired. Yeah. And my and that's that's causing me to go back to behaviors that I know are not productive Absolutely. for my team. Okay, when you're a leader and in your when you're in that moment of truth where 
And I know you've been there because I've been in places where I'm sitting in an office with, with one of my salespeople who's going through a sales call. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the most embarrassing moment in my life. All I want to do is just disappear because this person is so bad. What was I thinking? How did I hire them? What were we doing in training? And I want to take over and you got to bite your tongue and sit on your hands and let them crash and burn so they can learn. How do you do that? First of all, you're making me laugh because we all have, I'm, you're, you're reminding me of a few sales calls there. I go back to some reality testing. And, uh, you know, I had a salesperson once say to me, you know, when they see speakers like you and I, um, they see a really good salesperson. They see the glory, but they don't see the story. I think we need to remind ourselves as sales leaders the story. You screwed up calls. You didn't get every deal. And maybe somebody simply wasn't there observing it. So I think that's one thing. Get over yourself a little bit, right? Uh, you've screwed up before. We, we tend to forget that and as we've mastered some things. But the second thing is, I think you've got to ask your question. I mean, in this for the short term or the long term? Because the short term is if you keep closing the deal, there's a point where your company can't grow. You cannot be the deal closer. And I don't know when that point will be because even superstars, you know, depending on the industry average deal size, maybe it's 5 million. Well, that's where the company's going to grow. And when it hits 5 million and that owner or that CEO needs 10 million, 15 minutes, maybe you're uh, being your private equity, what have you, you're toast and you're out of a job. So is it a short-term play or long-term play? And then the third thing is I often see, Jeb, where a lot of sales leaders are debriefing calls. Not great, by the way. They're not doing enough of pre-briefing. How do you get in that place in the first? Uh, so number one, put your seller under pressure. Yes, we, we do it like, uh, you know, I live in Denver. So I always say, do it like skiing. You start with green, easy role plays, make it a little tougher. And then you do black diamond, which is the harder one. So before I go out on the sales call, I'm going to go, what about this? What about this? I'm lobbing this. I'm lobbing this. If I've done my progression. See, a lot of managers take them right up to black diamond. And the seller never, you cannot progress. Faster. I mean, it's just skiing. I cannot do a black diamond until I've mastered green. That takes patience impulse control, delayed gratification. So I think you've got to put them under a little bit of pressure before they go out on the call. I do not see enough pre-briefing. So what are you going to break the time agreement? What are you going to say if they say, why you? Uh, we just had a bad experience. And the seller, if they've never said and done it, it's like when the words are coming out of their mouth, it's a foreign object. <laughs> so do more time pre-briefing than even debriefing. I think you'll find less of those calls. So that was a long answer. No, that was beautiful. And I hope everybody heard you. So I was, we're going to replay this in slow motion. There is only <laughs> one place as a leader that you can influence what the outcome of the sales call is going to be. And that is before the sales call. It's yes. the only place. You can't do it after. I mean, afterwards, you're doing your post call, right? You can only do it pre-call. So I call it a pre-call, post-call routine. What's your routine? And the routine yeah. for me is, why are you here? What's your target next step? And then tell me about the stakeholders. Tell me about this. What questions are you going to ask? What's your plan? What do you know? What do you want to know? All those things. If you're not doing that as a leader, you're going to fail. And when I go back and look at my tough leaders, like the ones that would just, I'd walk out of their office, I'd be so mad because <laughs> they start breaking down what my plan was for the call. And then, right. you know, in the middle of it, you realize, I don't really know what I'm doing. Like, I have no idea. <laughs> right. And then I would get mad. Like one of my reps got mad at me last week because I said, tell me about the person that we're having a conversation with. What is yeah. her name? What's her role? And my rep didn't know. 
I'm like, you're telling me this is a $250,000 deal and you don't know the name of the person off the top of your tongue. There's something bigger happening here. Walk me through it. And when we got yeah. done, she was mad, but guess what? That deal got better and we're going to close this thing, but we weren't yeah. going to close it before because she wasn't prepared and she wasn't aware of that. So just Colleen, that was the best advice ever. You want to do something pre-brief. Go yes. through the process ahead of time. Even if you're not in the parking lot with them or sitting next to them, they're just, you're having a call in the morning. Hey, you're going out on this big deal. And you better by God know when your salespeople are going out on something that matters. Yeah, and, 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 and look, you know, you need to let people make mistakes, but we don't break the company to let people make mistakes. So, well, if they're repeating mistakes, you've got somebody that either isn't buying into what you're teaching that's a belief system problem, or they're just lacking the passion to practice to get better. Um, so sometimes if, you, if, if you've told somebody two, three, four times, you know, I, I write about this um, from Dr. Henry Cloud. He, I advise this book for any of your sales leaders, Necessary Endings. And I'm sure you've seen this because in your book, uh, Sales EQ, you use the word hyper, ultra performance, right? right? So when you take a look, he said, a lot of sales leaders get to their, he didn't use sales leaders, but he said leaders get to their um, level because they're hyper-responsible, they're hyper-accountable, they care about people. And so then you've got a person on your team that you assume has all those attributes, right? And so you keep giving advice, keep making excuses, you jump through hoops. And there's a point where he says, you got to recognize you have a wise person on your team or a foolish person. A wise person hears the feedback, even if they don't like it right away. You and I probably both been there where we left a meeting going, huh? And then a day later, I'm like, yeah, you're, you're correct on that. Um, but a foolish person, you just keep yapping. And at that point, it's time to find them a new home. So I think for sales leaders, watch where your hyper responsibility can get in the way of improving somebody's performance as well. You simply may have somebody that you can't coach out of a belief system or frankly, they're just lacking a work ethic. You know, when you mentioned entrepreneurial leadership, uh, Dave Ramsey always says, uh, work at, lack of work ethic is a, a character flaw. <laughs> the term we used, which I thought was funny because, you know, I grew up on a farm in Iowa, yeah. we were working seven days a week. So uh, I love that comment. EQ is the one thing that the studies after study after study after study keeps coming back and telling us that people with higher EQ tend to do better over time in the world. And there's no disputing any of the evidence around that. So you're a leader and you're listening to this and you want to work on developing your EQ or your emotional intelligence. What are some, what are some steps doable that are actionable that, that leaders can take right now to begin making an, an, an immediate impact on their emotional control? First step I say is make a decision. Make a decision if you believe this is impactful or not, because if you believe it, you will do it. So the first thing is you just got to quit saying, oh, I think this is important. I think this is important. Do something or don't do something and then quit worrying about it. That is my very black and white answer. Then, if you do need to get a coach or if you want to read the books, um, but get models and frameworks because, Jeb, here's what I've seen when you're teaching some of the EQ skills. They can seem very esoteric, and you've got to be able to put it into frameworks. So, like, when we teach empathy, okay, everybody goes, step into somebody else's shoes. Well, what is that? What are they thinking? Why are they thinking it? So, we give them frameworks like the salesperson is frustrated because, and if you can't fill in the words behind because, you're actually probably demonstrating generic empathy, validation skills. So if you can find some frameworks that you actually can start filling in, that will help. 
impulse control. So this is funny because when I took my first EQ assessment, <laughs> I think my impulse control showed up about like that much on the, the assessment. So you and I are a little similar there, but you know what? Then I got some coaching. Think five seconds longer before you respond. Take two minutes longer if you're getting frustrated with something. So there's things, I'm very situational in this score. Um, I will put in the work on something and there's things that fly out of my mouth. So that's where I have to sit there and go, okay, let me recount my day. Where did low impulse get in the way and start writing down some things? So I, I really think it's, it's, if you can make it as tangible as possible, where did I not finish the last 10% of the conversation? See, this is what I see happen with sales leaders. They start seeing that top seller, good for your boss that he didn't allow you to sit, right? And so all of a sudden they're seeing the top seller get locked up. I could lose something, I could lose something finish the last 10% of the conversation and practice saying it out loud. See, a lot of times with assertiveness, you have to practice actually saying the sentence, write it out. It's like a good sales script. So I can be again, very situational on assertiveness. So I've had to learn, okay, what am I worried about losing? How am I going to say this in a manner that somebody can actually hear it? And I rehearse it. And then when the time comes, I'm not getting triggered. And then I mentally prepare a lot. Here, could, just like sales, right? Here could be the objection. Here could be the response. So I am mentally ready for every response so I don't get emotionally triggered and fire something stupid back that I'll regret. So those are some things, just some basic, I think frameworks and models are important to then start having this become part of who you are. One, one of my early mentors, uh, Mary Gardner, uh, one of the things that she did that I th was really powerful is when you had to go have a, a conversation with someone that would be coaching, but you knew there was going to be conflict. It wasn't like in the moment, crucial. you know, how did that work or what have you, but it, it, what we call a crucial conversation. What she would do is exactly that. You would sit down with her and you would role play it. And you would yes. role play it a bunch of times. Yes. And what, what you know, when you were doing it, you're thinking, this is stupid. Like, it, you wouldn't even get mad at it like, because you start, like, you actually start getting in the moment and getting attached to the outcome in the moment. Right. But when you went and got in front of the person and had the conversation, you were calm, you were cool, you were relaxed. You, you had already been through the entire emotional crucible in the, in, you know, in, that, in the role play. So when you got there, it, you were a lot better. And by the way, it was never as bad when you were there as it was when you were in the role play. So I think going through that matters. One, yeah. of, the, one of the frameworks that I use, uh, mm -hmm. and this is me because you know, I'm, you know, I, am, I, I can't help who I am. I am a, you know, a driven human being. I act on impulse a lot. That, and that, that, and that, that's worked for you. So no apologies. It does. It works. It, but there, are, I, I, I have a lot of regrets for decisions that I made in the moment that had I not made the decision, I'd be good. But one of the things that I learned uh, in, in the process of, of, you know, of trying to develop my own uh, level of emotional intelligence, especially around a, a impulse control and mm -hmm. attachment, was this or that. It's a really simple ledge that I use. Neuroscientists think call it the magic quarter second. It just gives you a moment to get your executive brain back into control mm -hmm. when, you know, Amy, I call my amygdala, when she starts running, you know, loose <laughs> on me. But what I do is I just say, do I want this or do I want that? So, for example, customers, you know, in my face, 
do, do, do I want to be right about this because I am right or do I want to keep this customer? In that case, I'll apologize even if I'm not wrong because the long-term value of this customer is worth the apology getting away with my ego or with my yeah. wife. You know, I'm, you know, Carrie and I have been almost going on 30 years, but it's do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? So I use yeah. that often. Like we're in the middle of something and she spits something at me and I go, do you want to be right or be happy? And I go, happy. I want to be happy. And so I go. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it, that is actually the neuroscience of emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. You've just done something called pattern interrupt. And so pattern interrupt is we've got, and I think you and I both, you know, we have some, this short circuit that can go right from zero to a hundred and then it gets me in trouble. And so if you do not have something that interrupts that neural pathway that you had conditioned for a long time. I think that's a brilliant one. One that we haven't mentioned, and it's been proven, and uh, Navy SEALs actually, this is part of their training, deep breaths. And two deep breaths, because number one, you pause before you start saying something, and it sends a message to that uh, brain that everything's okay. So even if you can teach yourself two deep breaths, now I, it's so funny because, you know, around our household, we have these conversations and stuff and Jim will be taking a deep breath and I'll be saying, so um, am I triggering you? <laughs> <laughs> so, so it gets to be quite humorous as a couple, if you understand this big breaths and, and such, but um, yeah, I think, you know, I think it's the power of habit um, is where you've got to put something in place like, I love your story on your VP of sales to change a habit. So saying something changes the habit of a quick response. Um, breathing changes the habit of saying something. So that's the other thing. I think, think of study that model of habit formation. You've got to change a new stimuli to change the response. And you probably have the acronym for this because I can't always remember it, but don't coach people when you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're already exasperated. By yeah. the way, that's the same thing for salespeople. Don't walk into a negotiation when you're worn out, when you haven't had any sleep, when, you know, when something's going on. I know that um, one of the things that I did as a sales leader, because I've got, I, I just, I burn through sugar really fast. And I, I'm not diabetic. I just, I get low blood sugar and I turn into a, a like a different human being. That when I was, a, when I was a, you know, an in the field sales, sales leader, my sales reps would like, I would get in the car with them and they would have a stack of fruit for me and they would feed me bananas. And as long as they were feeding yeah. me bananas, I was a really nice guy when they weren't. So now, you know, I learned from that. So my briefcase is full of energy bars. And even yesterday afternoon, I did just six hours of virtual training, standing in front of the camera, which is ugh, wears you out. Yeah, and then we had is. to go, we had to go shoot a bunch of promo videos after that. So it's five 30 at night. My producers in there and I can feel my temperature rising because they're asking me these tedious questions that like I don't want to know about the tedious questions just turn the camera on just do it yeah, exactly just like that so I caught myself and said this or that are you gonna cause damage here because you're gonna say something ugly to the people that are trying to help you are you gonna fix this and what I did was I, I excused myself from the room and went to my briefcase and got a cereal bar out and ate it. And then two minutes later, I'm the nicest human being in the world. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, to that. Yeah, that works pretty good. We can do this angle over here. And I just, this is just me as a human being and I've had to learn myself yeah. and be very careful. And sometimes it's, it's not obvious to me in the moment what's happening. So it's learning through regret, usually regret that mm -hmm. if I don't, 
fix that that blood sugar issue right there on the spot. I'm going to cause damage. I'm going to leave wake. And, and if I'm not aware you know, of it, then I might have a really talented person who's working for my organization that six months from now goes and finds another job because they're still thinking about the moment that I snapped at them in the studio, not because yes. I had any intent to hurt them, just because I did not have control over my emotions because, because the physiology of being hungry does that to me. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, you know, it's interesting. I do the same thing. I'm very careful and I'm not diabetic either, but I've got, uh, you know, those things they call power milk drinks. Uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, and one thing, you know, with the sleep, because right now, you know, there's, that's interesting, right? You're sitting there, you got so much going on at the company, but one thing I've had to, I really have not had to, I, it's not even a choice anymore. I have to get more sleep because here's what I found. I end up working on things like, Versus if I take another hour, get sleep, I'm just more productive there. And so that's one that, and uh, Ar- Ariana Huffington has written a couple books on this live. And so that's just something too. And it's so tough with all these changes right now that everybody, well, and to your credit, people that are making the changes, I'm hearing people working longer hours right now, just trying to keep up with everything. And so, but that sleep thing is, I would say I'm very intentional about, okay, there's some things I've got to give up because I've got to get at least seven and a half, eight hours of sleep. I don't have an option anymore. And um, so that's just something I think this physiology, I always like to tell people, you know, great leadership and sales is a combination of physiology, psychology, and skill set. And we've got to be managing all three in order to manage ourselves and lead and develop teams there. So your example, the physiology is one I don't think people even think about a lot. It just goes back to understanding that your behavior impacts the behavior of the people that are working for you and you get paid for what they do, not what you do. So anything that you do or don't do that gets in their way of doing their job is not in your best interest. And, and I don't think that we always get that or understand that. And that just goes back to, do I want this or do I want that, that, that pause, that getting yourself in control just a real quick quote. I think most people have heard this, but it ties right in with what you said. You know, you say something to a seller, you didn't mean to, you're tired, uh, hungry. You know, Maya Angelou said, you know, people will forget what you said, what you did. They'll never forget how you made them feel. And that's the physiology. It logs in your reptilian brain. So I might see somebody in two years and I'm just realizing I don't really care to be around this person. I can't remember it, but it is logged in that emotional center brain. So Colleen, last word, last piece of advice for sales leaders based on all of your experience working with leaders really across the globe. What do you want to say to sales leaders today that will inspire them to to elevate their their game as a leader and will allow them to build high performing teams? I would say today. Um... They need leaders more than ever, right? I think there was some quote I read. It was kind of a facetious quote. It said, we don't need leaders until we have a crisis. And right now, some industries are doing great. I've seen some that are actually benefiting, but you've got a lot that are struggling. Now more than ever is the time for you to be a leader. And I would also encourage them, make sure your team is equipped with 100% of the skills. 50% tactical skills, negotiation, objection handling, consultative selling. But the other 50% that you may not be as good at knowing, teaching, mastering is the emotional intelligence skills. So if your team's going out to compete with only 50% of the skills, it's going to be a tough road. And it's even tougher now. This environment is not kind 
to average sales organization or average salespeople. Maybe at the beginning of the year, we could get by with that. We can't today. So now is the time to really put in the work, do the work so you can do the work to become excellent. That's what's going to win to today and in the future. The great Colleen Stanley, the name of the book is <laughs> Emotional Intelligence for Sales Leadership. Colleen, Perfect. tell people how they can get in touch with you. Well, thank you. Great job, Blunt. This was fun. Thank you. Uh, so our website is probably the best way. We've got a lot of free resources there, and that's www.salesleadershipdevelopment.com salesleadershipdevelopment.com. Well, I could spend all day long talking to you, but you got good people to go train and we got people to go train. Thank you for joining us in the clubhouse yeah, and we you. will see you next time. I hope this episode inspires you to go become a better leader and to develop your own emotional intelligence. And I don't want you to forget to go check out Blueboard, the incentive platform that helps you give one of a kind and once in a lifetime presence club experiences to your top performing sales reps. When I booked my own reward, a trip to go ziplining in the Appalachians, my concierge Emma made it so easy. I just selected my experience from the menu, and Emma took over and did the rest of the work. And your winning salespeople will experience the same level of five-star service. They'll work with a dedicated Blueboard concierge who is their trusted guide throughout the entire process so they don't have to lift a finger. This is truly personalized white glove service. Look, it's time for you to start treating your top performers like the rock stars they are with meaningful rewards. So go check out Blueboard today for your next sales incentive program. Go to podcast.blueboard.com. That's podcast.blueboard.com. 